You are listening to a podcast of the Fleming Foundation. We are an organisation pursuing real learning, original scholarship and thoughtful living in a dying age. To another Fleming Foundation broadcast of the Best Revenge, a program dedicated to the arts of living well in a dying age. Today is another episode in our series on food. Our regular guest is once again Chef Garrett Fleming. Uh, the, of course, the music you've been hearing <coughs> is Costa Diva, the great soprano aria from Vincenzo Bellini's opera Norma. Chef Garrett, welcome. Thank you. The uh, Today, not coincidentally, we're going to be talking uh, about how to make and appreciate the great Sicilian pasta dish, pasta alla norma. Um, what are the basic elements uh, for this dish, Garrett? You, can you uh, tell us a little bit? Sure. Um, well, you have tomatoes. Uh, I guess they're not the highlight. The highlight is probably the eggplant. Um, you have tomatoes, olive oil, ricotta salata. Uh, you have torn basil leaves. And then intermittently throughout all the recipes I've looked at, you have the addition of of, of uh, really a collection of cheeses. I've seen Parmesan, I've seen Pecorino, and I've seen fresh mozzarella. Yeah, the... The uh, the classic uh, version, of course, was made with ricotta uh, in salata, which is salted ricotta. And it's important when you're cooking Italian dishes, if it calls for ricotta salata, you don't just substitute uh, fre- regular fresh sweet ricotta. They're, they 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 taste quite different. The the uh, ricotta salata has been has been salted and aged for oh, about a month, uh, uh, usually. The, uh, do you know why the uh, dish is called pasta alla norma? Well, uh, in the little research that I did, I found two different stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have that, uh, what is it, that a playwright named Nino Martolio, yeah. who's from Catania, was comparing how delicious the pasta was with uh, the opera lyrica or something, and so he said this is Norma. Yeah, th- this apparently, it, it's said to be, I don't know if this is true, but I've read that it is um, a proverbial phrase in Catania, which is to say para na Norma, that is para una Norma. It seems like a Norma, or a real Norma, because Bellini was from Catania, he came from uh, a fairly humble background, and the people of the community they raised a fund to actually send him to be educated, and uh, in his brief life, he wrote some of the greatest operas in the permanent repertoire, uh, particularly Norma, which we heard uh, a few seconds of, 
just a, a little bit ago, and of course my, my favorite I Puritani, the Puritans, about the, the English Civil War. And uh, he's a very lyrical and beautiful person, and you know, frankly, Catania, I, I don't want to offend anybody from Catania, but mainly if you ask people about Catania, they'll tell you it's dirty, it's dangerous, and it's controlled by an organization that you're not supposed to mention when you're in Sicily. Um, I've been to Catania once, and I, first of all, there's a lot of dirt and disorder there, but uh, the center of Catania has been beautifully cleaned up, and there is a Casa Bellini, there's a sort of park in this mansion there, and, um, and I ate in, uh, in a little restaurant in the student quarter, which had, by the way, the most beautiful waitresses I have ever seen in my whole life. They were completely indifferent to the needs of the customers, but, you know, who's complaining? Uh... And I got pasta alla norma there, and oddly enough, they used a very good fresh ricotta. Then they said, this is, our, this is our different take. But that's not really legitimate, especially Parmigiano is not really legitimate. So let's start, let's start with uh, basically uh, the, ingre the ingredients for a classic one, and then you can go off spinning your wild fantasies with these alternate ingredients. So what, <laughs> what I saw, which I thought was uh, probably historically more accurate, and all the Sicilians that were writing yeah. about, also included uh, cinnamon and nutmeg, yeah. which kind of shows geographically where they are. Uh, although a lot of the uh, a lot of the recipes, you know, picked up by Mario Batali and everyone else, don't include those. Yeah, but all the Sicilians include those. The um. As uh, some of our listeners may realize, if you look at Sicily, it's a, it's a crossroads between Italy and North Africa. It has always been a historically a crossroads between the culture of the Middle East and the culture of Europe. It was fought over in the 6th, 5th, 4th, 3rd centuries B.C., between Greek colonists and Carthaginian colonists. Of course, the Carthaginians are simply colonial Phoenicians. So it was, you know, there was a big clash there, terrible hatred and, and violence. But, and uh, after the Greeks faded out, they were still the majority population, the Romans took up the cudgels for Sicily, and of course the, the, the great Punic Wars, the three great contests in which Rome engaged uh, during the, the height of the Roman Republic. It was a, it was a struggle for the world, whether, whether we would speak Phoenician and, uh, and massacre our children at the altars of Phoenician gods or, or be Romanized. I mean, they, took, they took part. Uh, that, that was the result of this war, and the war began over who would control Sicily, the Greeks and the Romans on the one hand, or the Phoenician Carthaginians uh, on the other. So, and in the, in the Middle Ages, it was until uh, the 10th century or so, it was, it was uh, Byz under Byzantine control, so it was still Greco-Roman, and then the Arabs conquered it. And it took the, uh, the, the Norman-French uh, invasion a few hundred years later to purge the island of the uh, Islamic uh, conqueror and, uh, and eventually uh, returned it sort of to, to Italian culture. Sicily has always been among the most unusual parts of Europe because it is, it is both very ancient and has many uh, ruins of ancient Greek temples and cities, 
but it has this odd mixture. It's the crossroads between Middle Eastern culture and European culture. I say that all that by way of explaining why it is so fond of nutmeg, cinnamon, raisins, pine nuts. Uh, the first time I ever ate a, a true Sicilian dish was uh, a friend, Roberto De Mattei, who is Sicilian, took me to a restaurant on the outside of Rome. It was a kind of country inn. And there he said, told me to order a certain pasta. Uh, my, my mouth and brain couldn't figure out what I was eating because it had fresh anchovies and uh, red sauce and uh, pine nuts and, and uh, sultana raisins and cinnamon and garlic and hot pepper and um, I'm sorry, but it, it was it was not Italian food, and it's taken me years to learn to appreciate uh, really how wonderful Sicilian cuisine is, and uh, but but pasta alla norma is probably uh, more intelligible to people who like Italian food than a lot of Sicilian food, but it is interesting. Have you tried it? To, that you that you said you both cinnamon and nutmeg. Yes, it was referred to as us. So I'm th in the recipe that I saw. So I'm thinking that's what the Italian is calling as aromatics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, well, it'll, have you have you have you tried using spices? No, no. I thought I didn't. I didn't find that until later uh, yesterday. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Well, let's let's start uh, before we go on uh, talking about it. Let's, let's go ingredient by ingredient. As you say, the most important part of it, the defining quality, is the eggplant. And outside of southern Italy, you don't see eggplant very often in pasta, do you? No, not in pasta. Um, I, did see, uh, I did see another thing to kind of point it out geographically is that all the kind of authentic recipes I saw mentioned that they used a specific type of eggplant, which they referred to as Tunisia's. Mm. Because theoretically they came from Tunisia. What are they what a Tunisian eggplant look like? It's uh it's large, dark purple, uh circular, uh not even ovular. Mm -hmm. uh, only circular, kind of like a, a small pumpkin. Yeah, I've seen eggplant that look like that. You know, the eggplant did not enter Italian cuisine until fairly late. The Greeks and Romans did not have it. Most of the names for eggplant, and you know, in, in French, and it's aubergine, and uh, which is what they call it in England, the aubergine, and, uh, the, of course, Italian melanzana, which Italians think is derived from a Greek word for black, but probably all of the known European names, at least most of them, are derived from, uh, from uh, Arabic. The, the plant was originally cultivated in the Far East, in East Asia and South Asia, and it would have come by the usual steps first to India, and, you know, the western side of India and Afghanistan, those were within the Greco-Roman orbit. I mean, Alexander the Great conquered the, uh, the region, and uh, there, you can see very quickly the influence of Greek architecture and Greek sculpture and Greek art and Greek thought. 
And uh, even though it was uh, detached later on and, and under under Persian rule, under Parthian rule, still there was always, India was a means, the, the crossroads by which a lot of these East Asian things came, came into Europe. But it, it was, it was the, the Byzantines had it, and whether they got it directly from the Persians, as I think they did, or from the Arabs, uh, that, that's a matter for dispute. Why is it called the eggplant? Oh, because uh, it looks like an egg. Well, sort of. Some do. You know, there is a variety of white, of small white eggplant, which is only about one and a half times as big as a chicken egg. I've seen, I've seen pictures, and that is what would have given it the name eggplant in English. I don't know how far back that goes, 16th, 17th century, but <clears throat> that seems to be the reason. It was the white, the white eggplant. So. Now, the, the eggplant is used in Sicilian pastas a lot. I mean, there are, quite apart from pasta alla norma, to <clears throat> saute eggplant and garlic and olive oil and mix it with tomato and, uh, you know, ser serve it with noodles. This is not uh, an unusual dish. Uh, it, and it, it exists in, in as many different forms as there are different cooks and different, different housewives. But <clears throat> pasta, the, the, the peculiarity of pasta alla norma is... The, this precise set of ingredients of the the cheese, uh, the basil, the eggplant, and uh, so let's go on. We got the we got the we have the eggplant settled. <clears throat> How do you what do you do to treat the eggplant first of all? So it seems pretty standard in in dealing with eggplant that um, that you salt it, and I guess the idea of salting it is to draw moisture to kind of improve the texture. Before you, uh, uh, and here's where the translations come in strange. That uh, they, they all say fry, but I'm pretty sure what they mean is saute. Yes. Yeah. Um, and you want some nice color. Uh, what do they call it? Uh, in, in French, they call it doré. Yeah. Uh, what, what is it in in Italian? They they usually will use the word uh, a verb which means something like to turn red. Really? Yeah. They don't. So even even in Spanish, they have the same thing, dorado. And yeah. They, they use, but but it's different. They use the they use red, not gold. Yeah, that's at least in the in the in the in the cookbooks uh, I know. At least maybe, maybe that's only for onion or whatever. But it's yeah, it's it's too brown. Um, <clears throat> yeah, cut, deciding what's frying and what's sautéing is. They certainly don't deep fry it. No, they they uh, they uh, they they pan sauté the eggplant. Right. You tried. Uh, you tried deep frying it, though, didn't you? I did. I I did a. Uh, I did. Well, I had the mixture <clears throat> I wanted for texture, so I actually had it. I had the eggplant twice in my last preparation. So I I pan roasted it, or sautéed it, and then I uh, after I got color, I folded that in, um, and then I uh, and then I I topped it with a cut little alumets or matchsticks. And I, uh, I uh, just kind of chicken fried them. I soaked them in some buttermilk and then, you know, tossed them in a seasoned flour until they were crispy. And I, I topped it with that. Mm. <clears throat> Sounds extremely illegitimate. But uh, <laughs> <clears throat> the, uh, I was always told that uh, there are two reasons to uh, salt eggplant. Uh, the primary reason, as you say, to get rid of some of the water. But <clears throat> a lot of the eggplant we buy in America has either been picked uh, not quite ripe 
or has been grown in a nutritionally starved soil and it has a bitter flavor. I find American zucchini often has an unpleasant tang. Whereas if you grow it, uh, if and so salting it, some of what some of what leaches out in the in letting it sit for a half hour, an hour, or however long people want to do it, uh, part of what leaches out is that harsh, uh, stinging flavor that you know sort of burns the roof of your mouth if the eggplant isn't very good. Is that? But you wouldn't. You you of course are hand picking. Uh, uh, specially organically grown vegetables, so you probably don't have that problem. Well, here is where you are going to even be more disgusted. I find that the eggplants that you have available, if you're not going to the farmer's market and getting really nice eggplants from nice, you know, nice old hippies, um, and even then, sometimes they're overgrown and bitter, um, but I find that the elongated Japanese eggplant has all the flavor you want with none of the bitterness. Hmm. And it's readily available, uh, you know, at an Asian store or anything like that. And I, 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 I do prefer it to those kind of dumpling American ones that you can get because, be, for that reason, because it's not bitter. It's not, uh, it's not stark. Well, your preference for Asian products is unfortunately uh, all too uh, apparent. But uh, the, I am... Um, you know, I, until I found out that eggplant is originally an East Asian dish, I was opposed to even having a Japanese eggplant in my house. But now uh, I realize that's uh, it's been a little un, uh, unfair. Um, it apparently, by the way, it's in the it's in the nightshade family, and it looks yep. it looks a lot like the, the 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 shape of the plant looks a lot like deadly nightshade. Which is why uh, many people, and even in Italy today, people will say it's poisonous. It does have that astringent quality that's usually associated with poison. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I don't find that surprising at all. There's a small amount of poison in the leaves, and uh, I think even in the skin, but uh, not. But it's small amount. You'd have to eat, you know, fifty pounds. To, to, uh, of, of leaves and skin to make yourself sick. So there's no danger, but it, but uh, once upon a time, people understood botany enough, you know, they could look at a plant and tell what it is, so that, so that they, they, they developed this, they understood that it was in the nightshade family, which is a very powerful poison, and certainly in the Middle Ages and the Renaissance, uh, things made from uh, deadly nightshade would have been among the, uh, the strongest poisons they had. But do you, do you find that the salting, is, would you confirm or deny that salting helps to get rid of the, uh, the uh, sort of acid stinging that a bad eggplant can have? I think that, um, and this is something that we actually, we did a little bit of, uh, we did a couple of experiments. And I find that when you salt something, Usually, it, particularly when you're talking with vegetables or fruits, that you're trying to concentrate those flavors. Mm -hmm. All you're losing is water. Okay. Water is not – that doesn't carry the flavors or anything like that. So in theory, or at least what I would think is that it would concentrate those bitter, sharp flavors. Yeah. Uh, but I couldn't tell the difference when we did it. I did one – I did notice the roast. My eggplant kept their shape better – with um, without salting them, huh? Because they start to shrivel a little bit and they start to oxidize, which is something that you have to worry about with all eggplant. 
And I don't know, you know, once you roast it, it's, it's kind of hard to tell the difference, but it is, you can discern a difference between um, an oxidized roasted eggplant and a non-oxidized roasted eggplant. Well, here's a question. Have you ever tried, you know, taking, uh, finding a bad eggplant, you know, an eggplant that when you put it in your mouth raw, stings the mouth, and then you cut it in half, we could cut it in half and uh, salt one half, and not salt the other, and then saute pieces of both, and I guess that would be a, that would be that something would be like the, a, yeah. would be the experiment to have. But yeah. I'd already, you know, I hadn't thought about before we did our experiment. I'd already tried to uh, mitigate mitigate the damage by purchasing the uh, the Japanese eggplant and yeah. not the, uh, the the dopey French one. Yeah. Well, there are a lot of, and there are, you know, the Sicilians have their own kinds of eggplant. There are different eggplants throughout. Some eggplants are fairly light purple. Um, I don't know what those are called, as well as there being white eggplants. So there are a lot of different, uh, different varieties with, with obviously with different tastes. So we got the eggplant and it's, you have to, after salting it, you, what, cut it into uh, medium-sized cubes, what do you say? Half inch square, three quarter inch square. What do you do? Well, there's uh, there's where the recipe, according to which Sicilian are talking to, changes. Mm-hmm. Apparently, originally they were cut into uh, in circles. Uh huh. The pasta was mounded up with the uh, and the ricotta salata was grated on top of it in such a way. This is at the restaurant where. Um, where the composer ate, that they would present it to look like Mount Etna, with the ricotta looking like the snow, oh. and everything else, uh, kind of like it was a very, it was a very presented dish to purposefully represent Mount Etna. You know, Mount Etna, as anybody who knows geography realizes, the the nearest town, uh, the nearest city of any size is Catania, and from Catania you would go up to Enna or whatever, and then. There are these various uh, uh, excursions you could take to to uh, go to the top of Etna. So yeah, you know, so that Etna is a is a is a major feature, not just of the Sicilian landscape, but of uh, Sicilian mythology. It's a, so that would make sense. The, the some Greeks, you know, I'm sure you've seen this. They they'll make um, um, <laughs> what what's the Greek eggplant dish? Musakas. They'll make yeah. musakas. Uh, with a, they'll 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 make it, but they'll they'll reshape it in the form. I think they hollow out the eggplant and then they make layers within it, and it's quite a beautiful presentation. Pretty nifty. Yeah. Sometime we should do uh, we should do a special show on eggplant because I had one of the 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 greatest uh, most creative Greek dishes I've had in years. The last time we were in Athens, which was about a year ago. And at a restaurant right near, in the, in the heart of the tourist center, right near the Acropolis, they said they had resurrected a uh, an early version of Muzakas where they use, they they cut the, the eggplant slices lengthwise instead of in circles, mm. and and they used they used uh, not, instead of ground lamb, they made a kind of, of rich lamb stew, alternating it with the eggplant. And oh, and, oh, oh uh, yeah, yeah, it's a totally different. It's so much. I I love all musakas, but this really was quite wonderful. But it and it and it looked beautiful because they've sort of reconstructed it with these lo- long side um, uh, pieces 
of a, a, a eggplant so you could sort of stand it up. Well, we've talked about the uh, difference in, in ground meat dishes when you change over to whole cuts, like uh, the shepherd's pie, which I find pretty much inedible until I'd had a version, or I think I might have made a version that had uh, whole pieces of meat. And I just I don't know why, if you have the opportunity, why you would ever use the ground or the bolognese sauce. Yeah. You know, bolognese is another one where somehow it's turned into... You know, the majority of recipes calling for ground meat, yeah. which is fine. It's good. But, I mean, the whole process in that is removing all the fat, um, which, again, you're, you're removing some of the flavor from that. And because if you can't, it already separates from the ground meat, and there's no way to reintroduce it in a, in a tasty way. So what do you do for your bolognese? Not to get off the topic, but do you, do you cook it in one single piece, the meat, or do you cook it in, in like, stew meat-sized pieces, or do you I, chop yeah, it? Yeah, I... I brown it, so I, I take, you know, about fists, you know, just for, if you do one side, one chunk of meat, then the surface area that you get the browning on is limited. Yeah. So then if you go very small, then you're not really getting the taste of uh, of everything. I don't, I don't like that as much either because I don't want it to be completely blown apart, you know, like Midwestern barbecue. Yeah. Um, so I do like fist-sized chunks, and then I kind of cook it until you can karate chop it into more uh, more uh, smaller pieces. You may remember I used to make a dish known in the family as spaghetti alla mafiosa, and this was based on the uh, the Godfather when they're oh. they're they're in a crisis, and uh, Tessio is showing them how they used to make used to make uh, uh, pasta in prison. And yeah, with the blade. Yeah, and I I made uh, I would take a a roast uh, like a piece of chuck roast or something like that, cut the sinews off, and they'd be pretty big sized chunks and brown it with onion and garlic and then wine and add tomato and chicken livers, and you know until it was stewed down and falling apart, and then s- serve it. You know, I mean, you you could obviously you could use fresh herbs to do whatever you want, but the the basis was always you begin with a with a with a beef roast rather than a ground meat, and it's very rich, but um, uh, to me, it's always very satisfying. Absolutely, I mean, I think some of that even came over to uh, the United States uh, because in Jersey they have uh, what do they call it uh, Sunday sauce. Hmm. Which have you heard of Sunday sauce? No, never. So Sunday sauce is where you collect little tidbits and and leftovers from all the meat that you've eaten throughout the week, you know the roasts yeah. and steaks, and then it's essentially that. And even then, I've seen it where they've added uh, coming back to the aromatics. I've seen them add cinnamon to it, so you could tell what kind of Italians are living in New Jersey. Yeah, but it's you know it's onions, garlics, tomato, and then you just cook it all down with these leftovers throughout the week, and it's called Sunday sauce. Hmm. You know, one of the uh, not to not to beat this into the ground, and we we haven't got halfway through our pasta alla norma, but I've always hated most American chili, except you know I sort of like the Cincinnati chili, which they make with uh, Middle Eastern and Greek Greek spices. But um, my mother would make this horrible thing where she brown uh, you brown hamburger meat. And you add chili powder and tomato and I don't know what else. Then you add beans to it. 
uh, chili, first of all, any chili with beans, you, you ought to be arrested for, for even claiming it's chili. And then uh, years ago, before, before you were even born, your mother and I found a Craig Claiborne recipe where it's essentially, it's a Texas chili, but he makes a beef stew. And then he uses various peppers and spices, and it, it, it's, a, it, it's a delicious, fairly fiery, but it's, it's, a, it's a tender, you know, uh, braised beef. And it's, it's, it's a wonderful dish. It's all, all the difference in the world. And people who think they're making a good chili by just, you know, having hamburger and a can of this and a can of that I do not know what they're missing. Another dish that would be so much improved if you got away from the ground meat. Yeah. Yeah. No, I don't, I won't, I won't eat, uh, I won't, normally I don't eat. Uh, now, I did have a good uh, ground chili, ground meat chili in Charleston with a friend of ours, but what she had was, it was venzen. Oh, okay. And the venzen was so wonderfully flavored, and she's part Hungarian, so she treated this venzen partly with, you know, uh, Hungarian spices, and that was a very tasty dish. It's, it ain't chili, you know, as a Mexican or a Texan would understand it, but it was, it was quite delicious, but you couldn't, you couldn't do that with, uh, with hamburger. Okay. No. So we uh, we we so what what do you are you are you so are you sautéing rounds or are you sautéing chunks for your no, eggplant? I did chunks. I did chunks. Yeah. And I mean, what I also did was, uh, as you may remember, because I wanted uh, an intense kind of flavor. Um, I had on hand in the restaurant. We have a a roast eggplant confit, which is essentially like hard roasted eggplants that I've whipped up. With olive oil, chili flake, um, and roast garlic yes. into a paste, but it's very intense because I've I've basically evaporated all the moisture in the eggplant, so it's very very eggplanty. Um, and so I use that because as a kind of base with my uh, with my onions and my garlic, and then I added more for texture uh, than I added in my roast eggplant. Okay. So normally, though, it would be uh, the normal method is to sauté it in olive oil with with garlic. Yep. Any any onion as well as the garlic, or just the garlic? I've seen um, it's one of those. What's the other? Is it alarbiata, the one where they they never have the small dice? I've seen a lot right. of recipes that call for the uh, julienne. Yeah, yeah. The yeah red onion julienne in that recipe. The um, I know there's an Italian preference for using. I'm not saying it's a rule. But there's a tendency that they like they like to use either garlic or onion, and I I don't quite get it. You know, maybe maybe my palate isn't pure enough. But I but a mixture is often very satisfying. So I don't I don't know why you why. But but there are recipes, a lot of Italian recipes where it's one or the other. Yeah, I don't understand that one either because they do complement each other pretty well. Yeah. Yeah. I've noticed that in Ro in ancient Roman cooking they were cooking narcissus bulbs and uh and your mother said, Well, who wants to eat a narcissus bulb? And I said, Look, it's all in the allium family. It's our, you know, garlic, onion, narcissus, you know, most of the most of the a lot of our uh bulb flowers are in fact uh a first cousin of onions. So there there'd be no reason that the narcissus bulb wouldn't taste good. But uh, we're save 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 our secrets of ancient cooking for a future show. Okay, so we either you're either but you can bake the the eggplant or saute the eggplant in oil with with garlic with or without onion chopped or julienne, and uh, and then what do we do? 
Then you hit it with your San Marzano, and here's the, the important part that I've only only figured out by messing it up over and over, is that you don't add your chili flake until you add your tomato. Huh. And what happens if you do, do it if you add it too early? Chili flake. The ch- dry chili flakes take very little heat to blacken and turn bitter. Ah. Well, as you know, I prefer not to use chili flakes, and I use. I would be. Now, I. Your mother makes the pasta alla norma in this family, but when if anything which calls for chili flakes, I tend to uh, saute a hot pepper, usually a mild hot pepper like a jalapeno, at the beginning with it, and I get the heat and I also get flavor. But I've gone. I've gone back. I really like the fruit that you get from yeah. using pepper. But there is a a toasted kind of um, dry heat that is yeah. not that is not covered by the fresh pepper. Yeah. So just like the onions and the garlic, I like now even in the alarbiata, but anything that calls for chili flake, I use both of them now. I used to completely omit it, but it really does kind of give you a, a slight. <laughs> one uh, one thing that I began doing before I started using jalapenos. I would take whole dried chili peppers oh, yeah. and saute them, and they have they have more flavor than just the flakes. But it's mm. but it's sort of halfway between a fresh chili and the and the flake. So, so we got so so we have the you so you add uh, can, are you saying you add can, canned San Marzano uh, tomatoes? Whole, sure, if it's the, if it's the height of the season, then you can blanch. You know, beautiful tomatoes after you scored them in boiling salted water for five seconds and then peel them and puree that. Okay. But assuming that it's not the height of tomato season and you have access to beautiful tomatoes, you're not going to get anything better than San Marzano's. Okay. And one of the important things to do is never buy a pureed tomato product because when you have something like a, a like a whole plum San Marzano or a whole San Marzano, um, it really retains some of its vivacity until you blend it. Hmm. And so once you blend it, it's got a very short shelf life. So chopped is better than pureed. But above all those is, I mean, taste them back to back. One is one is sat around in a can and gone stale after it's been blown apart. And because simply the structure has has held together because it's it's not been pureed, it really rain, maintains. Uh, it's, it's night and day. One tastes vibrant and bright. And the other one just tastes like a good tomato product. Well, I once saw, uh, I don't know, somewhere, but a, an Italian cook, and I borrowed it. And instead of chopping tomatoes, I take them out of the can and uh, squeeze them. And, <laughs> you know, I saw how you do that. That's a thing. I, when I, we, I used to make bolognese, and this guy made corny bolognese, so he had a considerable amount of tomato product. But he yelled at me when he, he said, no, 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 use your hands, squeeze the tomatoes. And he'd have me open the cans up and, you know, put your hand in the can and yeah, start squeezing. Yeah, <laughs> no, that's, my, that's my standard routine now. And first of all, it's very satisfying. You know, it's like uh, it's like uh, stomping on grapes. And uh, I don't know. I don't know. My, my, my father always told me that it was, it was uh, bad manners to cut bread at the table. Uh, where he got this, I don't know. But that you're supposed to pull bread apart, but never never use a knife on bread socially. So maybe maybe you maybe you shouldn't use a knife on on the tomato when when your hands will do. Okay, and then so how long is this going to cook? 
Not that long because, I mean, for a couple of reasons. One, you don't want to uh, – well, so I read a recipe that said a half hour. That seems really long to me mm-hmm. because half hour, you're going to – you're going to blow apart some of the texture of your uh, eggplant. And more importantly for me is that you're going to lose the sugar acid balance of your San Marzano. Okay. So, well, so I do know recipes exist that say cook it up to a half hour. I just I, think that's crazy long. How saucy should the tomatoes be then? They'll still have a lot of integrity, won't they? I mean. Yep. Yeah. So, yep. and then at this point, you add the basil. The basil. Yeah, at the very end, you add, um, and I mean, it's not very uh, Sicilian, but it is an all-pasta cookery. You always want to, but what, <laughs> yeah, I can't even, it's, it's not even an Italian word. It's Monte au beurre. You want to finish with a little butter just to bring it up together. And it kind of, you get a little bit of your pasta water, uh, and you get a butter, a, a pat of butter, and it kind of melds everything together until a gluey, sticky sauce for your noodle. You do know that Sicilians don't even know what butter is. <laughs> Ah, they know what it is. <laughs> Just Rob, try, try getting Rob? try getting butter with your breakfast at a Sicilian restaurant at a Sicilian <laughs> hotel. Well, uh, they they they'd probably finish it. They would finish it with olive oil. Yeah. So a lot of their pastas are finished with olive oil, and it's used very similarly to butter. Yeah. It just isn't as sweet. There's a I saw a great movie where uh, it's at a funeral, and the family is getting back together, and one of the brothers says to the other one, I, I, I'm sorry your marriage broke apart. He said, what happened? And he said, well, you know, my wife's from Milan and we were living up there day after day, all that butter and cheese, I just couldn't stand it anymore. <laughs> uh, yes, it's, it's Italian, like, you know, when Metternich said Italy is only a geographical expression, you know, that it's not a country, uh, he, there, there's, there's still a lot of truth in that. You still see insulting signs in parks in northern Italy and southern Italy m- making fun of, of the others in really rather nasty terms. Uh, and so they, they just don't like each other. I once, I once had uh, lunch with a uh, Neapolitan prince, and he said, uh, you know, up in Milan, I mean, he was a prince and who also had, he was heir to a huge banking fortune. So he's very rich, a playboy. But he said, you know, up in Milan, they think of me as a woolly-headed African. And he said, I don't care. What if I am? He said, at least I know how to live and they don't. You know, it was, you know, usually if you're a prince, you could, uh, you don't have to have that chip on your shoulder. But, okay, so then, and then when do we add the ricotta salata? At the end. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, I think that's where, I, th- I did see some, some Italian-American and some Italian recipes that are, uh, that's, I understand why they would suggest pecorino. Because it's a saltier, yeah. kind of crumbly cheese. It's still got some cake moisture to it, which is similar to the ricotta salata. Yeah, uh, it's not exact because, but it's it's. I get why that would be substituted. If yeah, you were having- it would be a good. It would be a better substitute than fresh ricotta. Although the time I had it with fresh ricotta, it, and it was um, in Catania. Uh, one of the things they did in Catania, they 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 did something which Sicilians don't do. They made fresh pasta. You know, Sicilians don't typically make a lot of fresh. There's that recipe. I uh, a restaurant I took you to, which is. Strictly, uh, strictly uh, antipasti and pasta. Uh, pasta. They don't have any any secondi. And this is a place with the extremely thick pasta. Yes, yes. But see, what they don't 
The, the Sicilians, for one reason or another, they prefer the taste of dry pasta. They say it's like, uh, it's like turning bread into a cracker, and uh, they like it. And so they don't, they make some, obviously, when they make tortellini and things like that, which they do make a little, the equivalent of, or, or lasagna. But for regular, you know, for, th for regular, um, you know, things that we would normally use, spaghetti, tagliatelle, etc., they're much less prone to use fresh pasta than, say, uh, in, in, in the Po Valley. Hmm. But this this wonderful place in Catania, they had fresh pasta and fresh ricotta, and it was it was uh, they they said this is our our unusual take on on uh, on pasta alla norma, and we were within about two or three blocks of the Casa Bellini, so I think I think they felt they could do anything they wanted, but it it, it was a it was a wonderful dish, so I would recommend to our listeners that first. They just go to any decent Italian cookbook, you know, uh, with, 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 or go online to a site like Giallo Zafferano, which is uh, with a yellow, yellow saffron, or there are a number of, uh, which is in Italian, unfortunately, but there are, there are lots of decent Italian cookbooks like Marcella Hazen. And start with, a, start with a standard recipe and taking all the hints and information and secret lore that you've had uh, today on this show. And then you, after making it standard a couple of times, then sure, try fresh mozzarella, try fresh pasta, try, try substituting pecorino. But, uh, but, but uh, start with the classic, and then, and then you can play with it. I want to uh, mention that the majority of ricotta that's made and sold in the United States is not actually ricotta. It's farmer's cheese. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with it. I like it. But I had been making it for years in restaurants thinking, which is which is where you acidulate milk. Uh, yeah. You bring it up to a boil. You acidulate it and add a little salt. And then you pour off and separate the, uh, the curds. Um, and then you just strain that. But that's not actually uh, – what is what is turned into ricotta salata? That is ricotta ricotta, which I'm having. Uh, I found you know it's it's actually just on on kind of uh, extreme cheese blogs and cheese websites where they have recipes for these things. Hmm. But it is it is uh, yeah it's a, a different texture. So when you said that you had to eat at a restaurant, I'm sure you'll like to know this where they finished it with fresh ricotta. Um, there's somebody uh, in looking in researching recipes. I saw that uh, who else does it? Uh, Martha Stewart <laughs> recommends that you finish it with fresh ricotta. But what she's saying is go to the grocery store and get the fresh, you know, the the the, the farmer's cheese, yeah, yeah. And crumbly, crumbly, curdy stuff. Yeah, and that's going to finish it with, which yeah. is just ignorance on her end. Yeah, well, and whatever virtue she has as a Wall Street investor. Did not transfer over uh, her, her, her the recipes in her cookbooks have not been even proofread and double checked because I, I remember some friends of ours ran a little restaurant in Rockford and they really liked Martha Stewart but they would do these they would do the recipe by the book and it wouldn't work out because neither, neither Martha nor her the cook she employed were actually uh, double checking these things so she, she's not a reliable a re reliable source for cooking. But the uh, obviously in Catania they were not getting uh, they were not giving me farmer's cheese from uh, uh, you know from the supermarket, right? 
Although you know the the you were asking me about their uh, about smoked ricotta. Uh, I remember the name very very distinctly. Although I am not having any luck with Google search or anything finding it under the name tricotta. Tricotta, yeah, no, but you can find you can if you look up uh, ricotta salata uh, uh, affumicata. There are uh, I found many. I found that. Yeah. yeah. Is that is that uh, that must be what you're looking for, right? Dad, I, I can't believe you don't remember this. It was one of the most delightful things that we had. They had uh, the old men had uh, these cakes of brown on the exterior cheese from being smoked. Yeah, and they cut into it and they were slapping it. Oh yeah, yeah yeah. Show the moisture fly out to show you how fresh. How fresh. Cheese was. This was uh, this was in the market on Artigia in, in Syracuse. Yep, that yeah. was it. Yeah, yeah. Well, Andre Razov says that in one form or another, every cheese store and even supermarkets in Palermo sell a smoked ricotta. Obviously, they're they're going to be of totally different qualities and different types, but uh, but uh, that would be an interesting thing to uh, to try. So you're going to have to learn how to make it. I know. I, so I, I have uh, that's on my. I have I have some nice cow's milk coming in. So we will uh, we will be attempting that this week. Well, on that on that positive upbeat note, uh, I think we should say goodbye to our listeners, friends, colleagues, enemies, whoever uh, tunes in. They're always welcome. This has been a presentation of the Fleming Foundation. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to a podcast of the Fleming Foundation. All rights are reserved. These podcasts are made possible by our paid members who ensure that our hosts and writers can contribute regularly, not on a volunteer basis. If you have any questions about anything you heard on today's episode, or if you wish to acquire rebroadcast rights, please email podcasts at fleming.foundation. Until next time, on behalf of all of us here at the Foundation, Make the most of a dark age.